Turn to Matthew chapter 4, or if you have a device, click on your Bible app and go to Matthew 4. That's where we're at in our ongoing study of the book of Matthew. And I want to start today with kind of a strange question, and it's this. How many of you have ever been in a cave? Like a legitimate, bona fide cave? Cave, okay. Well, more than I thought. My, uh, I think I've been in a cave twice when I was dating uh, my wife-to-be, Shirley. We visited Luray Caverns down in the Virginia area. And then uh, a few years ago, when our kids were smaller, we took them down to Mammoth Cave down in Kentucky. Maybe you've been down there. And each time we had uh, the same experience. You'd be on a, a tour, and there'd be a tour guide, and he's taking you down into the bowels of the cave there. And uh, he'd come to a point and stop and say, now, prepare yourselves, because in a moment, I'm going to extinguish the lantern. I'm going to turn the lights out, and you're going to experience the blackest darkness you've ever experienced. And uh, people start to get a little bit jittery and nervous about that. And all of a sudden, boom, they turn the lights out. And it is dark. And he said, now take your hand and put it in front of your face. Can you see your hand? No. (laughs) That is inky, black, suffocating darkness. And usually they'd let it linger for a while. And people would start to get a little nervous, you know. And and you'd hear this kind of nervous chuckling. It's like, okay, time to turn the lights back on, you know. (laughs) Turn the lights on now, that's enough of that, and boom, they turn the light back on, and there'd be this sigh of relief, and everybody's like, oh, good, you know, now we can see around again. You know, when you're used to being in light, being in total, complete darkness is a very scary thing. Now, most of you who know the Bible know that light and darkness are very common metaphors in the scriptures, right? We see it all the time. Light is often employed to represent truth. Goodness, righteousness, purity, freedom. Darkness, on the other hand, is often used to represent what? Sin, evil, lies, deception, and bondage. When you read the Bible, you find that it describes this world as being kind of a dark place. And its inhabitants engulfed in a kind of spiritual darkness that's not only around them, but also in them. In stark contrast to that is the portrayal of God in the Bible, and he's always portrayed as what? Light, brilliant, dazzling, bright, white light, breaking into this dark world to bring light to the people. So in the passage that we're looking at today, the writer Matthew is tracing, as you know, the, the unfolding story of King Jesus, and now we get to the point where Jesus is about ready to go public. He's about ready to launch his public ministry, and Matthew portrays him as a bright light coming into a dark world, to light it up. And it's a beautiful, beautiful picture. Let me read it for us, Matthew 4, beginning in verse 12, and I've got the New International Version today. Here's what it says. When Jesus heard that John, who's that? His cousin, John the Baptist, had been put in prison, he returned to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum. Say Capernaum. Okay, that was the name of a town up there in Galilee, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, the way to the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Here it is. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Now, let's understand where we're at in this biography of Jesus Christ, the King. Bible scholars note that there were basically three phases to Jesus' public ministry. Year one of his ministry was 
him ministering in relative obscurity. Not that many people knew who he was. He bursts onto the scene, the public scene, in year two, and that begins a season of popularity where the crowds were gathering to hear him and to watch him do miracles. And then year three was a season of increasing hostility as Jesus began to challenge the religious establishment of his day and he fell into some disfavor with them, which led to his crucifixion. Now last weekend, you might recall where we left off the story. Jesus had just completed a season of testing, right? The temptations in the wilderness. And recall that it was God's plan that his son endure this season of testing. It was part of his training regimen for becoming king. And by successfully resisting Satan's temptations, Jesus demonstrated his commitment to use his powers not for himself, but for other people, for their benefit, right? We should all thank Jesus for that. But maybe you're asking, okay, well, what happened right after that? And the answer is that Matthew doesn't tell us. Neither does Mark, neither does Luke. Most scholars agree that there's about a year that passes between the temptation of Jesus and this trip that we just read about up north to Galilee. That was that year of obscurity. Only John gives us a picture of some of the events that happened during that year. So if you read John 1 through John 4, you'll see that it was during that year of obscurity that Jesus called a few of his disciples. It was also the year where he went into the temple and what he saw there bothered him so much and got him so riled up that he made a whip. Remember reading about this? And he drove the money changers out of the temple and that rankled them a little bit as you can imagine. That was also the year that, that Jesus uh, went to Cana, that wedding in Cana, and he turned water into wine. It was also the year that he met uh, Nicodemus and met the woman at the well in Samaria. All that happened during that year of obscurity. But now when we get to Matthew 4 and verse 12, Jesus is about ready to burst onto the scene publicly and it says there was an event that triggered that. Do you see what it was? The arrest of John the Baptist. John put in prison. And we know who John is, right? John was who? Jesus' outrageous cousin, the preacher man out in the wilderness. And we know that John's light burned brightly for a while. People came to John, and of course he pointed them to Jesus. But he was very popular for a season. But then what started to happen is what John predicted would happen. Jesus would increase and he would decrease. And at the end of that first year of Jesus' ministry, that year of obscurity, that was happening. People were not flocking to John's meetings as much anymore, and now they were going after Jesus. John was okay with that, because remember what he said? John said, I'm not the guy. He's the guy. I'm not the light. He's the light. So yeah, come down to the river and hear me preach, but when you hear me, you're going to hear me talking about Jesus Christ. And John said, the truth about me is I'm not even worthy to tie that man's sandals. He's the one. He's the king. He's the Messiah. And so what happened is John's ministry started to to go on the fade, and Jesus' ministry started to grow brighter. And then John compounded things by getting himself thrown into prison, which tends to put a damper on your ministry, you know, when you're thrown in jail. Now, what happened? What did John do to get himself thrown into prison? Well, it tells us in Matthew 14 that what happened was this. John was a prophet, and you know those prophet types, they just say what's on their mind, right? So he happened to notice that King Herod, the local ruler there, 
had actually stolen his brother's wife. He'd seduced her and took her as his own wife. And John, he's a prophet. He couldn't keep his mouth shut. And he said, that's wrong. And you know, when you get on the bad side of a powerful ruler, you can end up in hot water. And so that's what happened. Herod found out about that, and he had John thrown into prison. And of course, that imprisonment would later lead to his death, right? So here we are now. John is out of commission. He is sidelined. But that was okay as far as the plan was unfolding because that was the plan all along for John to decrease and Jesus to increase. So now it's the appointed time for Jesus to take center stage. And so we see that God's plan had a time frame for when Jesus would be born, when he would be commissioned, when he would be tested, and now for when he would go public and burst onto the public scene. And it was John's imprisonment that signaled that transition. So, what I'm saying to you is that this plan showed that God had an appointed time for Jesus' public ministry. It also had a pub, uh, appointed place, right? It happened in an appointed place. Matthew tells us that Jesus went up to Galilee. Now, we need to do a little geography lesson here. So take a look up at this map up on the side screens. And hopefully there are some names there that you recognize. Look down at the bottom and you see Bethlehem. So this is Palestine or Israel in Jesus' day. And he was born, as you know, the babe in the manger that first Christmas in Bethlehem. But then shortly thereafter, his parents whisked him down to Egypt to avoid Herod's wrath. Remember that? Avoid being killed. So he lived in Egypt for a season. But when they returned to Israel, they went up north to Nazareth. That was Jesus' hometown. Jesus grew up from a young boy up to age 30, lived in the town of Nazareth. Now, from time to time, his family would take trips, little excursions down again to Judea, to Jerusalem, the big city, kind of like, you know, going to the mall or whatever. They would go down there for festivals and feasts and so forth. And so Jesus did spend some time in Jerusalem. That was the religious center of his day. And that's where he was in the temple when he made the whip and drove the people out. That's where he was when he met with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. But then when John was arrested, Jesus realizes, it's my time. And he decided to head north. And he went up through Samaria, and that's where he met the woman at the well. Remember the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4? He met her there. And then he continued north, and he decided to visit the home folks in his hometown of Nazareth. Stop in and see the locals and hang out with them for a little bit. How did that go? Well, he went to church on Sunday, and when he was in church, he pulled out the scroll, and he read from Isaiah chapter 61, which is a messianic passage describing Messiah. And He basically read that, and then he said, well, that's me. I'm it. And so some of the people were cool with that, but others were a little bit, you know, rankled by it. But then, when Jesus told the congregation there of, his, of the town folk that God's plan was to not only invite Jews into his family, but to invite Gentiles into his family, that didn't go over quite so well. Things went south pretty quickly, and actually, the hometown folks decided they were going to run him out of town. In fact, they were going to kill Jesus. It says they took him to an edge of a cliff, and they were going to push him off. These are his, the, the people he grew up with, his community. And they said, you know, we know who you are. We, we've had enough of your big mouth. I think you're the Messiah, and you're telling us that God's going to reach Gentiles. But it, thankfully, it says Jesus miraculously escaped, walked through the crowd, 
and continued his journey on up north to Capernaum. And so now, in at the place we're at in the story, this is where Jesus is setting up camp. This is going to be Jesus' home base for the remainder of his ministry. And he starts what is known as the Galilean ministry up in that region. Now, Galilee was kind of like Franklin County. About 50 miles by 25 miles, had about 3 million people, inhabitants living there at the time, spread out in 200 different villages. And it was a pretty eclectic, cosmopolitan-type place. There were two major thoroughfares in that day, one that went north to south, actually went all the way down to Africa, one that went east and west. And you know where they intersected? In Galilee. So it was actually a place that was open to new ideas. There were lots of travelers who would come in and through that region, hang out in the pubs and the coffee shops, share new ideas, talk about what was going on in the world. And so if you were a young guy with a lot of passion and energy and a message and you wanted to start a new movement, Galilee was the place to be. It really was. Jerusalem, that was down south, kind of off the beaten path, very much established in its religious heritage and tradition. But Galilee was open. And this was the appointed place for Jesus to begin his ministry. And he spent most of his time up in that northern region of Galilee, preaching and teaching and healing people and casting out demons and all the things that you read about in the Gospels. Does this make sense? I know I'm laying a lot of geography on you. All right. So my point in bringing this up is to say that, that when Jesus broke onto the scene publicly, it was not only the right time, but it was in the right appointed place place of God's choosing. And of course, Matthew is always looking for ways to tie Jesus back to the Old Testament. He, it's his intent to show that Jesus was the Messiah, the promised one, the predicted one. And so he reaches back into the book of Isaiah, and he shows that Jesus is this great light who is going to dawn in the land of Galilee, as it says in Isaiah chapter 9. Now, Jesus came at the appointed time the appointed place, and he was the appointed person. Matthew says, Jesus of Nazareth is the light. That great light that was going to dawn on the people, he said, it's him, it's Jesus Christ. The light of God's glory. We'll talk about that more in a minute. In a minute. So, appointed time, appointed place, the appointed person, and he came, number four, with the appointed message. He came with a message, didn't he? And in Capernaum, he began to preach it. And it's found in verse 17, kind of in summary form. What is it? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Now, does that sound familiar? That sounds exactly the same as his cousin's message, John the Baptist, what he was preaching, right? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Same message, repent. God's kingdom, what he was saying is God's kingdom is breaking in to this earthly kingdom, and you're going to have to change your mindset. That's what repent means. You're going to have to rethink your thinking if you're going to get in on all of the benefits of being a part of God's kingdom. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. All of this was according to plan. It was all planned out, and Jesus was following the plan of God precisely. Right time, Right place, right person, right message. Now, I want to take the remainder of our time and focus a bit on this notion that Jesus 
was God coming into this dark world as the great light. Because I think not only was Galilee engulfed in darkness 2,000 years ago, but we live in a pretty dark world, don't we? This world is kind of dark. As I said earlier, darkness in the Bible represents several things. It represents sin and evil, moral impurity, lies and deception, spiritual blindness, spiritual death. Really, darkness represents the domain of who? Of Satan, of the, of the devil. That's right, the place where Satan rules. You can kind of sum that all up and say darkness represents God's absence. The absence of God's kingly reign means the presence of darkness, thick, black darkness. You know, when you're in the dark, you're kind of stumbling around, aren't you? When you're in the dark, you don't know where to go. When we were in the cave that day and they turned the lights out, I had no idea where the path was that we needed to go next. That's what it's like to be, to be in the dark. Some people are in the darkness and they know it, but other people are in the dark and they're oblivious to it because it's all they've ever known, kind of like a fish in the ocean. It's all, water is all that fish has ever known. And some people are walking around in spiritual darkness and they don't know it. They think it's light out. Really, when you look in the Bible, darkness is a condition of the heart. It's shocking for some people to hear that the Bible declares that darkness is the default condition of the human heart. Here's God's assessment of humanity as a whole. Listen to this from Romans 1. For although they knew God, meaning they knew that He existed, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were, what? Darkened. Here's another description of humanity without God. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Hard hearts, foolish hearts, darkened understanding, futile thinking, ungrateful, refusing to honor God as God, alienated from God and life and light, pitch black darkness. You know, one effect of spiritual darkness is, is that it impairs the ability to make good judgments, to make accurate assessments. Maybe you've heard this verse from Isaiah before. It's like a woe or a warning. Isaiah 5.20, listen. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. You ever heard that verse before? This tells us that human beings whose hearts and minds have not yet been illuminated by the light are prone to make statements and declarations and assessments that are way off. They see something that's, that's evil and they say, well, that's good. Or they see something that's good and they say, that's bad. Like when a nation peers into a mother's womb and sees an unborn child there, but instead of seeing... Instead of valuing that life, they decide instead to call it a piece of tissue that can be discarded and then establishes laws that make it legal to take that child's life and then declares that killing an unborn baby is a right that needs to be protected. 
darkness does that to people. It clouds their judgment. Their, their, their evaluating mechanism gets convoluted and they start looking at things and good things and saying that's bad and bad things and saying that's good. I thought about this bitter and sweet thing, what it says here. And uh, this came to my mind. There was a season in my life where I thought being sarcastic, I thought sarcasm was sweet. I thought, man, this is really cool. I can use my words to just cut and carve people up so that they feel really low and I feel really good about myself. This is so sweet. Me and my buddies, we were good at it. I mean, we were world-class, black belt, sarcasmers or whatever, sarcasters, whatever that word is. How it seems so sweet to us and to me until one day, I was slicing and dicing up a particular person whose back was turned to me, and they, they turned around and looked at me, and they had tears in their eyes. And in that moment, through the mercy of God, what had seemed sweet to me became very bitter taste in my mouth. In that person's hurt, I saw my own hurt, my own inadequacy. I saw for the first time the reason that I used sarcasm to cut other people down. And it was through the mercy of God that he took that away from me because I no longer felt the need to continue to build myself up by tearing others down. But you know, when you're walking around in darkness, you don't see that. What's sweet looks bitter, and what's bitter you think tastes sweet. Darkness does that. Well, you know what? Jesus came to dispel the darkness of the human heart, didn't he? Jesus came to chase away the darkness. He was the great light coming to push back the darkness in our hearts and in our families and in our communities and in our nations. He is the great light. Listen to the testimony of the Bible. Listen, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. Who's that? It's Jesus. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light, which lightens everyone, was coming into the world. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Jesus spoke to them, saying, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. As long as I am in the world, he said, I'm the light of the world. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. I've come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Jesus is the great light. He is the day star, the bright and morning star. Like the sun rising on the crest of the horizon, Jesus came as the new dawn of a new day, his brilliant light streaming out across the landscape, lighting every man and every woman. Jesus is the great light. Jesus is truth. Jesus is goodness. Jesus is the very essence of moral purity. Jesus is life. And when he came into the world, he lit up the world with his truth. You know, one time, Jesus was with some of his closest buddies. He took them up on a mountain and he said, hey, I'm going to show you who I really am. And for a few brief moments, he pulled aside the robe of his flesh and emanating from the core of who he was was what? Light. 
brilliant, dazzling, radiant, thick, heavy, bright light. And his buddies were like, whoa! He said, I'm the light. I am light. The composite of all of his attributes manifesting themselves in brilliant light. What a moment that must have been. And just as Jesus the light faced down the prince of darkness there in the desert, Jesus would continue during the course of his life to chase away darkness. And even in his death, he pushed darkness back. The darkness of sin would be exposed for what it was, right? Jesus said, you know what? People don't want to come to the light because when they come to the light, what happens? They get exposed. He would expose sin with his light. The darkness of deception would be sent packing. Exposed by the light of truth, the darkness of despair and hopelessness would go slinking away into the night as Jesus the light would bring hope and peace and reconciliation with God and forgiveness and illumination to everyone who trusted in his word and they would bask in the warmth of his light. Jesus is the light. Say that with me. Jesus is the light, but you know what else? Jesus gives his light to his people. You know, he said, I'm the light of the world. But then he turned around and he said, you are the light of the world. You're the light. I'm, I'm the light. I'm giving you some of my light. You're going to be my light bearers, my lanterns, my torches. You're going to be carriers of my light. This is gloriously true. Jesus is the light, but his followers are the light as well. Listen to God's assessment of his people from, from the word. Listen, for one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. You are the children of light, children of the day. We're not of the night or of the darkness. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light you're light if you know Christ turn to someone and just say you're, you're a bright guy or you're a bright gal I, I suspected that was the case <laughs> okay you can stop now <laughs> feels good though doesn't it I'm a light you are the light you've not only been called into his light you've been given his light. We are illuminators in a dark world. Isn't that fantastic? We who know Christ, we're light carriers. The question that presents itself is this, how can we shine his light in this dark world? How can you, how can I, how can we shine his light in the dark world that we live in? Well, this gets really practical, so let me mention three ways. The Bible tells us we shine his light, number one, by reflecting his character to other people. Yeah, we, we represent him to people. We reflect his character, that fruit of the Spirit. Hopefully, if we're walking in the Spirit under the control of God's Holy Spirit, then the, his fruit is being produced in us and through us, and people see that, right? We spread his light by reflecting his character to others. Now, listen to this scripture. It's a little bit jolting. Philippians 2. Do everything without complaining or arguing. <laughs> That's in the Bible. <laughs> Do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation 
in which you shine like stars against the velvety black night sky. You stand out. How? Quit your whining and complaining. Get rid of that. I wonder how many people have gotten turned off to Christianity and Jesus Christ because they work with Christians who are always chronic complainers. They're whining about this and whining about that and the bosses piling on and this and that and the drivers and the snow and, and they're thinking, you know, so this is, this is your God? I mean, you know what I'm saying? We shine his light by reflecting his character. What, what about the grace of Christ that we've received? Shouldn't that be what we're exuding in the, in the workplace and in the neighborhood and at the coffee shop? Shouldn't we be exuding gratefulness? I mean, we've been given so much. Snow is beautiful. It's glorious. It's a picture of the gospel. Anyway, that's another talk for another day. We shine his light by reflecting his character. Second, we shine his light by sharing his truth. Amen? By sharing his truth. Paul wrote, you shine like stars as you hold out the word of life. What's the word of life? It's the gospel message that we find in the Bible. So this is why we read the Bible, study the Bible, listen to the Bible, preach the Bible, so that we get God's word. Memorize the Bible, meditate on the Bible, do the Bible. You guys should be preaching this message, I think. You know? So that when we're with people, it leaks out of us. His truth just kind of leaks out onto others. That's how we shine his light, by shining the light of his truth. Let me add one last very important way that we shine his love. We shine his light brightly by gratefully and openly doing love works. You say, I've never heard that word before. Well, we're, we're coining a new word around here, love works. You say, you can't do that. You can't just make up words. Well, sure you can. People do it all the time, right? Twitterverse, was that even a word a few years ago? Hashtag. People make up words all the time, so we're going to do the same. Love works. It's a new word. Say, what is it? Listen to the words of Jesus from Matthew 5. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let them see your good works. You shine your light by letting people see your good works. We're not saved by our good works, but we are saved for good works. And we're to do them openly in such a way that people see them and go, wow, God must be great. You say, what are love works? Well, let me give you a definition. I think it's a good one. What are love works? Self-sacrificial acts of kindness offered to those we cross paths with at Tim Hortons, at Giant Eagle, at the office, in the neighborhood, in hopes of pointing them to our glorious God, amen, offered, this is important, with no strings attached, not out of guilt or duty, or to somehow obligate God, you got to bless me now, God, but rather motivated by gratefulness for Christ's sacrifice, prompted by the Holy Spirit as we entrust the results to God. Love works. 
let your light so shine before people that they may see your good works, your good deeds, and glorify your Father who is in heaven. You need to know this, this is the motivation and desire behind this upcoming 40-day Love Works adventure. Here's the deal. As I talk with more and more new lifers, I get the sense that, that this is now the season where this could be worship. Why? Because so many of us now get the gospel. It's dropped from our heads to our hearts. We get, we get what Christ has done for us. And now doing good works can be worship. This is love works, not law works. You know, you can do good deeds for all kinds of reasons and motivations, right? Fear, well, if I don't do good works, God's going to zap me. Guilt, duty. Listen, this is not, all right, Pastor Steve's telling me i got to go out and be nice to people, so <laughs> I guess I'll try it. This is not that. This is not duty, this is not fear, guilt, duty, obligation. This is not even trying to get God to bless you or become more like Pastor Claude. <laughs> no, no, this is worship. This is us saying, we received so much from you, Jesus Christ. How could we not? How could we not love people with your love? The gospel is churning passion and desire up in us, and it needs an outlet, and this is it. Love your neighbors as yourself because of Christ. That's what we're talking about. This is, this is a small group going down to the homeless camp every month, cleaning up the camp, dispensing toiletry items, praying with people, not because they're trying to fulfill some sort of religious duty, but because they want to. It's in them. It's worship now. It's worship. This is you surprising the people in the next booth at the restaurant by picking up their tab, not because you're trying to twist God's arm and get him to bless you, but because you want to, because you are so grateful for the free gift of salvation that Jesus Christ purchased for you. See the difference? This is not law works. This is love works. This is brothers and sisters in Christ rushing to the aid of a family going through a crisis. Not grudgingly, but because they can't not respond to a need that's presented to them. I, I have to. <laughs> I am compelled inwardly to meet the need that I see. This is a small group adopting a widow in our church to care for them and bless them. This is a band of mature women teaming up to figure out how to rescue young women out of the sex trafficking that's happening right here in Franklin County in central Ohio. This is Christian teenagers prompted by the Spirit of God at their campus, at their school, seeking out the outcasts and instead of making fun of them, befriending them, reaching out to them. This is speaking gospel to your neighbor who is despairing of life. This is love works. Because of Christ, because of Christ, because of Christ. We've got to stay anchored to that and so we believe, we in pastoral leadership here believe that this is what our incredible Savior, Jesus, the light of the world, is calling our church family to focus on this year, spreading his light by offering his unconditional, no-strings-attached love to the people in our neighborhoods, our communities, our schools, our workplaces, in the name of Christ. And you know what? 
We just hope it goes viral. We hope that stuff, you know, just spreads out and goes on out here. We don't even ever hear about it until years later, you know, someone says, you know what? One of your people at New Life did this for me a couple years ago. And I go, yeah, I know. I mean, I'm not surprised by that. That's just the people of New Life. They love Jesus Christ. They've been loved by Jesus Christ, and that's why they give of themselves to others. Wouldn't that be cool if it just went viral? Oh, I could preach for a long time about this, but I I should probably wrap this up. So, love works. I hope that you, I hope that God touches your heart to be all in with this. Now, let me wrap this up by just closing and asking you three questions to ponder and to think about, okay? Based on what we talked about today, Jesus the light, giving us his light to spread in a dark world. Number one, question number one, are you still in the dark? Are you still in the dark? I mean, I have to ask that question, right? You don't have to be. Jesus, the great light, has come. He's offered his light, it says, to every man, every woman. And if you're walking around in the dark, if you don't know Jesus Christ, he's done all the heavy lifting. He's done all the hard work. He died on the cross for your sins. He rose from the grave. He purchased your soul. All you need to do is bow your knee to King Jesus and give him your heart. Repent and believe the gospel and you will be saved. And you will receive his light. And you'll go, whoa, I didn't see all this before. I didn't see all this truth. I didn't view people this way. I didn't view Jesus this way. The lights will come on. And you'll see for the first time. Hope you're not still in darkness. If you are, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Second question, if you're in the light, if you know Christ, who brought you to the light? God uses people so often to bring the light. Who was your John the Baptist? Who pointed you to Jesus Christ? And have you ever thanked him? Have you ever thanked that parent, that grandparent, that youth worker, that Sunday school teacher, that aunt or uncle, whoever it was, that friend? Have you ever just said, hey, thank you. You you were my John the Baptist. You pointed me to the light. And I want to thank you for that. And then the last question is, for all of us, can we do our love works in such a way that God looks great? Can we do that? I like what it says. Let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify you. Oh, you're awesome. That's not what it says. It says they may see your good works and God looks greater to them. Like, whoa, God must be awesome because of how you've loved me. Can we do our love works in such a way that God looks greater. May God give us his grace to do that. Amen? Amen. Well, let's bow together in prayer. Think about those things. If you've realized even today that you're a person who's still in the darkness, I'm here to tell you the light has come. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You will be saved. Put your trust in him, fully, completely in him. And I would say this, if you do, tell somebody. Tell somebody in your row. Come up and talk to a prayer partner and let them know. They would love to pray with you. Lord God, we declare as a church family today, you are the light and you have given us your light. We see clearly now We used to be walking around in darkness. 
We see things much more clearly now because of you. May we be carriers of your light to our friends, to our neighbors, to our family members, to our fellow brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. Use us to bless this community in ways that maybe have never been seen before and may by your power it go viral and change everything for many, many, many people. And Lord, through it, become great. In your name I pray.